Welcome guys, before we get into it, I just want to let everyone know that this podcast was recorded over the course of two hours. Now we know no one's really got two hours to listen to a podcast, it's easy to lose concentration, so we've split it down into two halves um, for your easy easy listening digestion. Um, so if you want to catch up on the rest of this conversation, then be sure to check out next week's podcast, which is the second half. Um, but until then, uh, let's get into it. Okay, then welcome back to another base training podcast. This week we have got a guest with us. Um, we're going to be discussing the tactical athlete. Uh, but as always, firstly, I like to go through where you can find more information about what base training does and uh, where our guest, who I'll let introduce himself. Um, does so base training you can find more information at www.base.training you can also contact me on lee at base.training or one of our coaches either will or stefan just put their name and then at base.training you can also hit us up on instagram which is base training uk and yeah that's pretty much it so with us we have mr alex butt from stoic conditioning um welcome why don't you tell us a bit about yourself like who you are what you do and why you do it so uh yeah my name is alex uh, i'm the head of performance and uh, one of the directors of stoic conditioning you can find us at stoicconditioning.com nice and easy um our instagram is the same stoic conditioning um not many people like that instagram or have that instagram tag so we were pretty lucky with that <laughs> um and then if you wanted to get in contact with us info at stoicconditioning.com as well that works that goes straight through to all of us coaches so uh, yeah, what is Stoic Conditioning? We're a training company and we specialize in training tactical athletes. So I know you, we were discussing like the definition of a tactical athlete and what a tactical athlete is. And for us as a company, a tactical athlete is anyone who uses their body, uses their physical fitness, their strength, their mindset um, in the application of their work or their job or just their general day-to-day -day life. Like, so that's like, obviously there's military applications for that, but also police fire ambulance, tree cutters, farmers, people, <laughs> you know, they could all be classified as tactical athletes, right? Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of like our, our umbrella term for that. So, like yeah. It. It was actually, it's actually um, quite interesting. It's, it's a bit more of a general definition than I was actually expecting. I was like, mm. like cause from my experience, you guys, special forces, it's parachute regiment, it's all um, the Marines and military um, yeah. orientated. But um, to hear you say, oh, it's, it's just anyone that uses their body in day to day life, um, yeah. it's quite, it's quite refreshing actually. I've never heard that in relation to the tactical athlete. Yeah. And it's um, like, don't get me wrong, our focus is that very military application, like the, the special forces, Royal Marine Parachute, like the, the UK armed forces. That's where we, we narrow our field of focus when we're when we're talking about specialists and things like that. And, you know, I'm sure we'll go off into a conversation <laughs> about specialists and generalists. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, really, like <clears throat> a, a lot of our base programs, like our fundamentals program, our long long term strength, long term conditioning programs, that is based around like people that need their fitness for their life, which 
really when you think about it it should be all of us but <laughs> you know there's a there's a big push on longevity and uh looking at markers of uh people's like lifestyle and how that degenerates over time and, and just building that up and, and really informing people of how to keep themselves going for their entire life rather than having their quality of life just plummet at the end yeah it's, again that's it's not one that i've heard before like in relation to the, the the military tactical athlete is I've not heard that approach um it's very much focused towards they need to do this job and then you worry about the rest afterwards actually yeah. it's like from what I kind of gather um your approach is more actually this is something that we all used to have to do whether like in the present day you're in the military and it's very focused but what 200 300 years ago most people were in the military or doing some sort of physical labor throughout the day they're having to fight to defend themselves and it's yeah. something that we, we don't have to do anymore and just like our daily movement right as you say you know if you if you go back a couple of hundred years obviously i think the majority of people were statistically farmers <laughs> correct <Yeah. laughs> me if i'm wrong which is a pretty arduous lifestyle um you know and, and within that subsects like uh you know farming forestry like all, all kinds of stuff like that but very movement orientated and very um like application and expression of movement and strength orientated whereas in this day and age it's completely the opposite a lot of us are very sedentary even when we're like you know we've got fitbits and trackers and it's like yes i've nailed my twelve thousand steps a day and it's like if you go back a couple of hundred years that would have been like the first part of your morning worth of energy expenditure so you know our, our lifestyle has evolved quite a lot over the over the last like 100 200 years really since the revolutions right the industrial revolutions and then technological and the, the industrial um yeah technological revolution more recently but um us as a species we haven't evolved so we still need that direct input we still need that um expression of output we still need to move our bodies really and if you look at how the body uh, deteriorates when it doesn't have that movement, when it doesn't have that uh, output orientation, um, it's, there, there's a lot of negative health effects and a lot of negative uh, psychological effects as well. And really the psychological effects has only started to be like uncovered recently. Um, but then we've always known the benefit of exercise and, and mental health, but I think it's the people are starting to look at it from the other way around where it's like, if we don't exercise, how does that affect our mental health? Mm. It's quite interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. It's, it's a conversation that I could, I could have for hours was, and hours. Cause I was like, we're already going down a rabbit hole and we're only five minutes in. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to, I want to keep it very much. Cause I know a lot of the, some of the audience that listen are in the military and again, from my experience with you guys, um, it's very much like you niche within UK special yeah. forces tier one and tier two. So I wanted to kind of um, stick on that if possible. Um, so what are, what are the prerequisites that you look for in someone who comes to you and says, I want to go for, I want to join the Royal Marines. Like what sort of things are you looking for to say, okay, this might take one year, two year, five years. Yeah. For you to be successful. Really interesting question. And <laughs> If you've ever read through any of the um, Q&A sessions we have as a company, like you have this reoccurring theme of it depends. It depends on the person. It depends on the individual. You can quite easily as a, you know, as a coach, as a, um, a strength and conditioning coach or a trainer, 
you could hold up a set of statistics and be like, you must have this level of strength, this level of conditioning, this level of blah, 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 you know, all these things. And people can try and tick them off and then they're unsuccessful. And it's like, oh shit, why were they, why were they unsuccessful? They ticked all these boxes. And, but so there's a, <clears throat> a big part of it um, comes back to why, you know, we, when we work with people, um, and a lot of the information that we try and get out onto the Instagram is actually understanding why you want something. That comes back to kind of your internal motivation, your internal drive, external or extrinsic motivations, things like achieving something or, um, you know, getting a, getting a reward for doing something. They're good. That's what we sometimes call a push motivation. It gets you, gets you going. But really, if you don't have that deeper, like I want to achieve this for this reason, uh, kind of motivation, then, uh, that push motivation can only get you so far, um, Certainly in the aspect of, uh, I worked with body composition. I worked in a body composition specialist gym for a long time. And, uh, we worked a lot with the psychology of the people that we were doing transformations with, because anyone can come into the gym and and train and you can measure people's nutrition and get them sleeping right. And yes, physically they're going to change, but the people that had the amazing transformations, the ones where you're like, bullshit, did that happen in 12 weeks? Um, those were the people where we really got back down to like, why, why are they doing this? What's their pull? What's their pull motivation? What's pulling them towards their goal rather than just pushing them away from something that they don't like. And it's the same thing with, uh, anyone trying to achieve a very high level, um, high level goal. So tier one operative, that's a very high level goal. (laughs) Uh, you've got to be driven because there's no one going to be there at the sideline being like, come on, keep going. You know, there's no cheerleaders in this. Uh, if you don't have it within yourself to keep pushing when shit hits the fan, when things are tough, when it is horrible outside and you've got a four hour tabbing session in your programming, it's like, if you don't have that pull motivation, that's where people are going to start to fall down. So going back to your question of like prerequisites, that's probably one of the first things we look at is, you know, do you have the mindset for this? Because even the training is going to suck, uh, let alone getting through the, the actual selection process. That's, that's hard as right. Um, and the mindset and the, the kind of psychology of getting through of all that, all of that needs to be solid from the get go. You can build on it definitely. But if you've got someone who's like, you know, I'm, I'm just doing this because there's nothing better to do or there's nothing else. Um, or if I didn't do this, I'd have to go and do something else that I don't want to do. And again, it's like, that's a push motivation. You're just being pushed away from something else that you don't want to do rather than truly wanting to achieve something very high level. And there's always outliers as well. So, you know, um, there's always the outliers that are physically fit mentally very strong in anything that they do so they can achieve stuff like that and they keep going even though they you know they may get knocked back and they have that uh, innate growth mindset where it's like everything is uh everything's just a, a cool thing that they need to get over and that they can progress into as long as they keep working um and that's potentially like again going off on a little side tangent yeah. there but uh growth mindset and mindset in in general is something that we cultivate a lot um, through stoic conditioning and stoicism and everything that we really do because it's it's vitally important. It's really it is it's the, well, it's the first word in your the company name stoic, isn't it? It alludes to that philosophy. What is it that drew you towards 
stoicism in general? Great question. Um, so we use the word stoic in our, in our company title for two reasons. One, the word stoic, uh, as in lowercase stoic, um, we have the description of it on our, on our website, which is the ability to endure great hardships without any outward display of emotion. That pretty much sums up <laughs> someone going through selection or any kind of uh, selection process, right? Is that kind of, you're going to go through some hard shit and you're not going to be able to really bitch and moan about it. That's stoic, <laughs> that's stoic lowercase, right? Um, the uppercase stoic, stoicism or being a stoic is a set of philosophies or a set of virtues, like it's an, an ancient philosophy. And stoicism is a bit of a buzzword at the moment. And, you know, there's a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon where it's like, oh, stoics, they're amazing. And, blah, 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 blah. and it's like every philosophical system is good if it's used, like if it's beneficial to the person using it. So like I see a lot of benefit in the teachings of stoicism. Obviously you've got to take everything with a pinch of salt because a lot of the stoics that we're studying, like Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and stuff like that, they lived 2000 years ago. They didn't know we were going to have computers and air travel and, and shit like that. So <laughs> there are a lot of lessons within their teachings that are applicable and instantly applicable. You don't even need to like alter them instantly applicable to this day and age and, and just who we are as people, right? Cause we haven't changed. It's just our environment has changed. Uh, but then there's also the odd, the odd one that you read where you're like, ah, that doesn't really count anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I read, uh, was it 365 stoic meditations or daily meditations or something like that. And some of them I was like, yeah, I'm not sure about that one. Others I was like, hmm, that's just changed my life. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, you know, that, that one quote that you read and you say like it changed your life or it, it changed the way you view something, which then has a knock on effect in everything else that you do with, you know, how you view that. Um, that's a big deal. And, and the book you mentioned that, uh, is a daily stoic by Ryan holiday. Mm. Uh, um, that's a, a fantastic book to get started with. Yeah. That's the one that was the one I read. Um, uh, what's it? What's the obstacle is the way as well. The other is the other one. So you talked a bit about, or quite a lot about um, mindset, probably being one of the most important factors and, and prerequisites that you look for for someone approaching uh, some form of special forces selection process or any selection process to that matter. How how do you go about um, implement or or training that? Uh, how do you go about training mindset? So it's a great question again. Uh, mindset's a something that needs to be done day in and day out, right? And it's it's kind of your outlook on life and outlook on all situations. So the reason why we use stoicism again is that kind of um, it sets you up to make better choices with any kind of stimulus coming in, be it a hard physical stimulus, be it a confrontational stimulus, being like an aggressive stimulus, be it a stimulus where you're sat on your own and you're perseverating about things that you have no control over, but they're still affecting your mindset, that kind of stuff. So really mind training takes place every minute that you're awake. Um, 
and it's the choices that you that you make with the stimulus that's coming in that makes the biggest difference but it's it's compounding so you make a good um choice of of a um from a stimulus coming in and that kind of like leads into a better choice the next time and a better choice the next time and it's a, a positive feedback loop but likewise you can have that negative feedback loop as well you know it's when, when people are they feel victimized and then they they feel like they can't get ahead and it's not like a self-fulfilling prophecy and then something bad happens to them and then they're like okay yeah well you know of course something bad happens to me because of this this and this and you know i blah 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 and i deserve it and victimization and and kind of stuff like that so it's really about putting a halt to that and getting people to think in every scenario um, in, a, in a different way. And it's not, it's not about being positive all the time. It's not about being happy and always smiling and stuff like that. It's about understanding that we're all human. We're all going through the same thing. We're all trying to do our best, but we can always make that better choice. And uh, if you just mindlessly go through life and just kind of react rather than being proactive with your choices, um, then that's when you get into that negative feedback loop. And it's quite easy to fall into being negative. I think uh, humans are primarily set up to always see things in a negative light. And I think it's a bit of a survival mechanism. You know, no one uh, from a primal point of view, we're, we're, we're set up to view the rustling bush as something insidious and something bad. It's not we're not looking at that rust the bush that's just moving like that and being like, ah, oh, it's just the wind. We're looking at it being like, something's going to jump out of that and eat me. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's knowing that in this day and age, we don't really have that. But at the same time, we, we do in some aspects, it's just on a different scale, right? Exactly. So in terms of cultivating mindset, it has to be done with every every choice that you make throughout the day. You know, and it doesn't need to be perfect. You just need to be progressing. Okay, cool. So how do you develop that through the, the physical program? How, do you, you like, does that carry over? Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you've ever been in a workout that sucked, <laughs> you've always got a choice <laughs> to push harder or take it easy. And from an external point of view, from a coach's point of view, uh, you can see it when people let up on the gas pedal a little bit. So within the realms of some of the training sessions that we, we do, we put in training sessions that are particularly nasty, they're particularly hard, and they, they tap on the door of like high threshold um, sessions and, and things like that. But then within that, we also give people targets. Um, so we have can't or won't workouts as well. So a can or won't workout will be, uh, say for example, one is a 300 meter row and you do that within a minute. And if you do 300 meters within a minute, then you rest a minute and you do it again. And you keep going until you can't carry on or you won't carry on. And we give people like a, if you want to be pushing hard, this is the level that you're going to be pushing at. And obviously that's still training an energy system. It's still training essentially like your aerobic threshold system but also your anaerobic threshold system as well but it's more about we're looking at that and being like okay this is this is one that's gonna separate the people that want it from the separate you know separate them from the, the people that are just here to say that they trained a, a special forces program right yeah <laughs> 
I like that idea of the. Uh, <laughs> I, I heard. I think we've got a bit of feedback again, but I heard um, a guy called Ross Edgley talk about like a program that he would uh, describe as adversity training, um, and it's essentially what you nice. what you um, described there that can't or won't uh, mindset. How yeah. do you get? How does someone um, delineate between when at that point of like physical exhaustion, whether they can't or whether they won't go on? Yeah, I think that comes back to knowing yourself because you've been so consistent with training so if you know that there are certain like when you get to about 15 minutes of a hard workout and then you you know that your body because you've done like sessions like this before you know your body's going to start to tank if you get to that level and then you slack off that's a choice you know if you if you know that when you get to say a 50 and i'm being completely like just arbitrary numbers pulling out of the air here but if you know that when you get to 15 minutes worth of output you're fatigued you're you know you're feeling manky it's horrible and you don't really want to push on the next time you come to a 15 minute workout and you get to that 15 minute mark and you choose to slack off that's a choice and that's a choice on you know you you, you know that your body can push on we all know that when we're feeling fatigue, when we're feeling that burn, when we're feeling exhausted, we can always push a lot harder. The human body is capable of pushing way harder than the the safety mechanisms in our in our brain that tell us to stop working out or tell us to stop moving. Um, so if you get to that level and, and you slack off, that's a choice, and that's that's your uh, that's your mindset being like, you know what, I'm just going to take it easy today. Yeah, I think that's partly that safety mechanism kicking in again, isn't it? If you go too hard, you might break yourself, for instance. But as you said, it's yeah, yeah. Hopefully, with the the physiological training that you're putting in there as well, that then they're actually uh, capable of reaching those limits in quote marks um, and pushing it a little yeah. bit harder. So, what sort of physical we talked? Yeah. Like I said, we talked quite a bit about the mindset. What sort of physical requirements um, are you looking for? Someone to say, okay, this person will have a higher chance of being successful in, in whatever selection process yeah. they go for. So from a physical perspective, we're looking really at your like strength characteristics, conditioning characteristics, so your ability to keep going, your energy systems. Um, and then in the fringes, we're looking at nutrition and mobility as well. So those two have a, a force multiplier effect on everything. Um, if your mobility is dog shit, then, <laughs> you know, it's the 80-20 principle. You've got to work on that stuff. But if we're looking just from a strength and conditioning perspective, um, when we're looking at someone who has to go through a selection process where over the course of four weeks, they're going to be asked to march ex like very long distances over rugged terrain um, in arduous, arduous weather conditions, and then on top of that, they're going to be asked to do it in boots with crap kit. And they're going to ask, be asked to um, carry a certain amount of weight for each task. That's where it's like, okay, well, if you turn up and you can't like deadlift, <laughs> you can't deadlift the weight off the floor, then that's, that's going to be a bit of a, a big no-no for you. <laughs> um, if you turn up and have no, <laughs> no, uh, history of walking with weight on your shoulders so your shoulder girdle hasn't adapted to the ability to you know the ability of holding weight in that position 
again, you're going to find this way harder. If you've not walked over rugged terrain before and your ankles aren't used to pitching left and right, you know, if you've, if you've only ever walked on a treadmill or ran on a treadmill, which is a very uniformed uh, footfall and foot strike, again, the amount of energy your brain and your body has to pump out just to keep your ankles level and your ankles stable when they're untrained is way higher. Therefore, you're going to find the whole process a lot more arduous. And that's not to say that you're not going to be successful. It's just like set yourself up for success, right? Mm. Yeah, I, just from speaking from personal experience, I've started just doing a lot of hill walking again. And the first time I went out, I was like Bambi on ice. I was all over the place. My ankles, I was going over on them constantly. It was, it was crazy. But now having done um, a fair few more walks since then, over the past six months or so, it's not even a problem anymore. It's not even something I think about having to jump across a like a slight, slight ditch and land on an uneven piece of surface. Um, whereas before yeah. I would have been like, okay, I need to build a bridge to get across this safely. <laughs> Who can I use? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, are there like are there, do you have favourite movements that you go to to trying to develop that strength that you talked about? Absolutely, yeah. So a big one that we love is the trap bar deadlift. I think uh, every gym, every training facility, everyone who's like anyone should have a trap bar. Um, it's a very versatile piece of kit great for hip hinging, uh, great for loading the hips, great for loading your body in, in a variety of different positions, but it's a lot safer on your spine. It's a lot more transferable for our demographic as well. Um, and if you look at the numbers as well, in terms of peak force output and actually how much power you can put through your hips, when you compare it to a normal barbell deadlift, uh, the trap bar deadlift beats it hands down by like <laughs> hundreds of watts of power. Um, so it, it's, safer, more beneficial, more carryover, everyone should use it. So the trap bar deadlift is one. <laughs> and I don't have any stocks and shares in trap bars or anything like that. I just think it's a wonderful piece of kit. <laughs> um, so trap bar deadlift is one. Front squat is another one. I think the ability to front squat tells me a lot about how you can organize your body under a load, but also tells me about your upper back strength and your upper body strength and your ability to hold a... a a strong column spine, so a strong brace as well. Um, and then pressing and pulling, you know, those are quintessential movements. And uh, really a lot of the testing criteria we use with our guys uh, comes back to six movement patterns or the six movement patterns the human body can do. And we just have a, a few different tests for each pattern. Um, and it gives us enough feedback to be like, okay, well, we need to work on your hip hinge or we need to work on your unilateral strength or we need to look at your overhead pressing strength that kind of thing yeah so um trap bar deadlifting front squatting pushing and pulling it's quite interesting how you've you've come back to fundamental movement patterns um yeah it's easy to think i find that when you're talking about quite a specific goal um that yeah. uh, like special forces or whatever it is um that actually the training for it is relatively generic, I suppose, um, in terms of the, the movement patterns. Um, how specific do you actually get into an individual's um, training? Like, how, Would you then go on to, you mentioned about tests and things like that, would you then go on to go, okay, you, you as a person need to work specifically on hip hinging, so you're going to be doing more trap bar deadlifting? Yeah, 
In the realms of what Stoic Conditioning as a company provides, we uh, have our testing criteria set up and we're actually developing a part of our platform that's going to give people a lot of feedback in that regard. So they'll go through a testing week and at the end of it, it will say, you need to work here to see your scores improve a lot more or you need to focus on this. Or And it will be uh, strength metrics, conditioning metrics and mobility metrics. And we're going to combine all of those in, a, in an algorithm that will uh, hopefully be pretty pretty comprehensive for people. Um, certainly the, the way we're, we're aiming it, it will definitely give people a lot of metrics where it's like, okay, I need to, I need to work more on the, my strength aspect, or I need to work more on my conditioning aspect. And that will give them an idea of what program they're going to need to follow or where they need to, where they're going to need to put their most, um, all their efforts really. So, with stoic conditioning because we're not working with people one-on-one through the platform we want to try and give people the biggest amount of information that they can get from doing all of these strength tests and then explain it to them explain like well because your strength is low but your conditioning is high we need to bring your strength levels up and just maintain your conditioning levels um, but at the same time still work on your mobility and, and kind of give them a framework where they can be like okay so i need to do this on this day and then I can go and do my mobility training uh, throughout the week as well. But if we're working with uh, one-on-one clients or with uh, small groups of clients, then yeah, definitely we've got to, you know, as a coach, it's your obligation to then give people the most amount of information as the as an individual. If you took 20 people, I mean, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but you've got a group of 20 people, that's 20 programs because no two people are the same. <laughs> So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it can get quite individualized at that point, can't it? Um, yeah. And that's going down that kind of generalist and specialist route where it's like, yes, everybody ideally does need an individual program for them. But if you do 20% of these movements and you get really, really good at that, that's going to give you 80% of, uh, of your results. So with our, with the way we program things, it, it really does factor in like, let's get people really, really fucking strong in the six movement patterns and a few other accessory movement patterns. And then let's work on everyone's energy systems and let's really prioritize the aerobic energy system because that's going to have the biggest carryover to everything that our technical athlete community is going to do. But then let's not neglect the anaerobic energy systems and even your power energy systems and things like that. So let's work on those as well. And then let's also make people pretty mobile, not flexible, not like gumby, but but mobile, strong, controlled ability to actually know where their where their body is in space in terms of like their proprioception and coordination. So if we've covered all of those bases with the average person, they're going to be like ninety percent of the way there. And uh, to be honest, with most selection processes that we found, like being ninety percent good, eighty percent good, like that's enough to get people through. Again, if you've Got the right mindset. Yeah, that is that last 10, 15%, isn't it? It's in the head. Or some would say the opposite. It's mostly in the head and the, it's less physical. Um, I know from, yeah. from speaking with uh, guys at a past selection, like they always, or nine times out of 10, they say it's mental. Um, yes. And yeah. when you ask them about their fitness standards at that point, um, they're like, oh, yeah, it was pretty average. It was this. I used to run a mile and yeah. a half in nine minutes 30. And you're, you're like, how, how are you able to do that? 
that yeah. arduous yeah. test is like it's, I just had to keep going. I was just put one foot yeah. in front of the other. So, um, do you have you mentioned like about specific testing standards that you go through? Are you able to give some examples of that? Again, if it's if it's like your um, bread and butter and it's a secret you don't have to give away, feel free. Well, we've got a load of tests. So we use, uh, as I said, we use the trap bar deadlift and we're looking at like a three RM of that rather than giving people like a one RM to try and hit. Because again, we're not powerlifters. We're not trying to compete in powerlifting. So a three, three to five RM is roughly where we're looking at. Um, but generally with a trap bar deadlift, if you can't pull one and a half times your body weight, that's like, uh, okay, we need to build up your strength because that's going to correlate over into ankle strength picking things up off the floor that's going to correlate into how well your knees and your hips can organize themselves that's well, you know how well you can breathe and brace properly and organize a bracing system so you know that's uh that's the kind of way we look at things rather than just being like cool you lifted 130 kilograms good work it's <laughs> like sweet all right well that, how does that relate to everything else that that athlete has to then go on to do how does that relate to the 25 kilometer tab that they have to do with 30 kilograms on their back it's like you need to have that baseline strength so a couple of metrics like uh being able to lift over one and a half times your body weight with a trap bar deadlift with a front squat it's a little bit different and uh those ones yeah those metrics are a little bit we're we're kind of like playing with those at the moment but uh uh pull up strength as well so if you can lift uh all the metrics off the top of my head is like 30 percent of your body weight for a, a two to three reps on a pull-up again looking at upper body strength and being able to pull uh your body weight up plus extra that's pretty essential so you know things like that and it's really specific to not just the testing criteria, because the way we the way we look at some of our programming specifically the the more military-based programming, so the UKSF, the Royal Marine and the Parachute Regiment stuff, yes, we're aiming to get the guys through the selection process. Like, <laughs> as a coach, it's like, well, we've got to get them through the selection process. That's what they're signing up for. We've also got one eye on the fact that we want them to be good operators or good Royal Marines or good paras, not just like the guys that scrape through the selection and then kind of get to Pekoi and they're like, oh shit, okay, <laughs> it's a bad time. We'll get down to Limston and get a rude awakening. It's like, no, we want our guys to get through the selection process, of course, but then also be set up in a really, really good position. So when they get through the selection process, that's when they're going to be like, okay, I'm actually in a really good position to make the most of my training afterwards as well, rather than just hanging on for dear life, yeah. which after interviewing quite a few people, uh, you know, who have gone through selection process and then got to the other side and been like, it is another level. And uh, the first couple of weeks, you're still trying to get used to the amount of training that you're doing, just physical training, physical output. And you're not really taking on board the other stuff that you're meant to be learning as well. And how does, um, you mentioned about that one eye on I suppose the future, the point after the selection process, how does it, how does life differ to the selection process to what is actually happening in um, the job role? But how does your yeah. train, does your training start to change after that point to say work more on endurance or more on strength or more mobility, for example? 
really you've got to be looking at a longevity point of view um, and that's not to say a maintenance program but a longevity based program so what is the program that you can then do for five years 10 years 15 years while you're an operator you know <laughs> exactly right because everyone you know, not many people go through uh, the hard work of going through that selection process and then they're like oh you know one or two years uh, some people that probably do but the majority of people when they get to that level and when they've gone through that pull motivation to get them through that selection process they want to be there for 5 10 15 years right they want to have a career out of it not just a flash in the pan thing so really at that point you've got to be like well the training is going to be different they're not trying to test you at that point. They're trying to train you and improve you. It's, it's very much like a growth mindset mentality at that point. So your training, your physical training has to um, complement that. It has to put you in a position where your longevity is the thing that you're training the most. And longevity training comes back to remaining mobile and remaining, you know, having a range of motion available to your joints that you can always control to stave off any injuries, but also to improve your capacity for movement so that any demand placed on your body doesn't lead to an injury. And really injury mechanisms come back to, uh, you don't have enough capacity for the demand that you're putting on it. Also the demand is exceeding your capacity. So if you're always improving your mobility, you're always improving your, your end range strength, then your capacity for movement's always going to be improving and you can reduce the risk of injury that way. But then from a strength perspective, strength is an old man's game. I think, uh, was it Louis Simmons said that? So, um, but also, if you look at the strongest people, the strongest people are the ones that are injured least. So those are the guys that are consistently improving. And it's that Kaizen principle, another buzzword at the moment. But I remember having this conversation with um, Charles Poliquin like 10 years ago and he mentioned Kaizen principle and now it's coming back into vogue. <laughs> it's like, it'll go out and it'll come back, I'm sure. Oh, it'll come back, right? Just like keto and low fat and high fat and all that kind yeah. of all that kind of fun stuff. Um, anyway, off topic. <laughs> <laughs> That's, again, it's another conversation we could have about the state of the fitness industry. <laughs> yeah, that's very different, eh? Um, but that Kaizen principle, that like, you know, I want to be 1% better every day. Um, or every week even you're not looking to make massive gains because it's not like you're preparing for a competition at a set specific date it's not like you're an athlete and i'm like okay in four months time you have a meet and we need to be able to lift this much because these this is the competition weight that we want to try and hit being an operator isn't like that you've got to be year round strong fit and mobile and able so let's train you like that let's stop trying to like uh, force people to like keep improving and keep pushing when it's like you know strength improvements come back to not only like the numbers that you're lifting but also your technique the speed the efficiency of the movement things like that it's not just grunt work it's not just adding plates to the bar and being like hey i lifted more than last week so that kaizen principle feeds into a lot of things in terms of after selection how does your training differ it's like it doesn't differ too much it, it just your mentality of it differs a little bit where it's like you want to continually just add in a tiny tiny little bit every time you come to training yeah <laughs> that's uh it's it's great to hear you talk about longevity especially when it's a specific um task and goal and as there's, there's a lot of stuff out there that is is very much the opposite 
Um, it's very much about testing as you're training um, constantly. So you, you go into the gym and every day you smash the smash your head against the wall and you try and do the fastest time, the heaviest weight, um, and the most rounds of whatever. Um, it's that the prevalence of high intensity training as the sole proprietary model to get fit and healthy. Um, and it's, it's interesting to hear your perspective and that actually a program that is going to keep you healthy for the long term seems to be the one that's more successful both in keeping someone healthy who isn't potentially a tactical athlete and also mm -hmm. someone who is in an, this extreme world um, where extreme things happen where you'd yeah. think that those two training uh, approaches would be different. Um, so it's, it's really cool to to hear that and uh, um, for those that are listening out there um, you don't need to smash your head against the wall every day to get better like you said it's one percent uh one percent better every day so you, you talked you mentioned at the start uh, a little bit about nutrition as well and you kind of alluded to it a bit how does that um, play a role within i suppose the selection process in getting someone ready for the selection process and then how do you deliver nutrition training Nutrition's a, an interesting one because uh, there's so much information out there. It's pervasive almost. Um, how much information is out there and how much misinformation is out there and how much of the information that is always pushed down people's throats is uh, bas basically information from people that have no qualifications, that have no like... Uh, scientific background or any kind of background it's all anecdotal and oh man it's uh well yeah as you say the nutrition industry and like nutrition in general in the fitness industry and from a health and performance perspective is a, a crazy conversation to have but how do we look at it we look at it from a perspective of we want all of our guys uh, and girls we want all of the people training our programs uh, to look at their nutrition from a performance point of view. Now, eating to perform comes back to eating enough high-quality nutrition so that you're fueling and supporting your performance increases, but not, enough, not eating enough so that it's supporting body fat increase. Okay, so we want our guys to have lean bodies. We want everyone on our programs to be lean to a certain extent. Um, because there's a lot of benefits with not carrying around an extra 15 kilograms of body fat, especially when you're carrying around 35 kilograms of backpack and uh, rations and stuff. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to crash diet people. Um, we always want to have the focus on performance, and that's, uh, that's really the key to our nutrition and the nutrition advice that we always give people. It's like, if you are... Um, Funnily enough, I'm just writing a big article about this. <laughs> um, there, there comes a point where if your body fat percentage is pretty high, then really when we're looking at like the, what you should prioritize, your priority should be get leaner. Um, once you're lean, then switch to a eating for performance mentality. But what's going to give you the benefit or the biggest benefit, it will be like being a little bit leaner. If you're already pretty lean, um, 
or even like sitting around the 20% body fat mark, 20, 25% body fat mark, eating to perform and then putting all of your energy into your output in terms of like your mental energy and your willpower into your performance and always improving your performance, your body will naturally lose body weight and body fat. Um, and you'll get down to a pretty, what, what people refer to as fighting weight kind of uh, standards. So yeah, that's, uh, that's like our, our overall, or, uh, like our overview of nutrition for our tactical athletes and the people following our programs. I think it's also interesting to how does that, like that, I suppose that's for a, um, again, you alluded to the selection process. Does that differ when someone has been successful in that? Does your approach change then to maybe more one of health and less about performance? Because I think it's always important, especially for some of the people that will be listening to this, they are about health and then some about performance and to delineate between yeah. the two. Like I said on a one of my Instagram stories or posts a while ago that macro counting is a performance tool and actually yeah. long-term, it's not great for health. Um, Absolutely. It's not sustainable. Yeah. So I think it's cool to uh, delineate that. So how does your does your approach change when someone passes? Not so much. And I think really our viewpoint is that health and performance coincide with each other. Yes, to a certain degree, if you are chasing performance to the nth degree, that can be unhealthy long term. Um, but what we're trying to cultivate, what we're trying to get across to our, the, the people running our programs and the, the people following us is that if you're focusing on healthy nutrition and we can discuss that in a minute in, in terms of like what what the fuck is healthy nutrition <laughs> um if your if your nutrition is healthy and you're eating for performance increases then that is going to be a healthy and long-term consistent diet um that will change mainly in quantity i would have thought in terms of your uh going towards selection or coming out the back of selection. It's just about quantity rather than quality. I think the, the quality and the, the structure of your nutrition will stay very similar. Um, but when your output is 5,000 calories a day when you're in training um, for selection, and then when you're on selection, it could even be more. But then afterwards, your output goes back down to like three, three and a half thousand. Obviously, you just gotta eat less to, to then stave off that, that big kind of like a increase of or decrease of output um otherwise you're gonna get fat <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I suppose like you said is there's a there's, there's a fine balance i think for those in that tactical role to yeah. strike between what is performance and what is health because at the end of the day like it is a job and they what 22 24 years that someone could spend in that how best do they keep healthy and perform? And like you said, when you start tracing perform like ultimate performance, then health actually starts to degrade. So that could have a knock-on effect ten years down the line when you're halfway through your career, um, and what like something happens and you get an injury and you have to pull out of that career and change lanes. Um, so it's uh, again, it, it just reiterates your point that longevity is a massive factor in your approach especially and I completely agree with that uh, not that you need my my approval <laughs> uh, but I completely I tend to agree um, crazy though it's <laughs> <laughs> that health and performance should coincide is like if you are healthy you're able to perform but again I think there's that delineating um, point to be made about 
elite level performance. Um, yeah. And how much, I suppose, uh, it's forming part of the question, how much of that is, especially at the tier one, like SAS and SBS level, um, how much of it is about health and how much of it is about performance at that point? Well, I think, with, again, when you're looking at long term, when you're looking at like a career of an operator of a tier one guy, um, it's got to be focused on health. It's got to be focused on longevity. It's got to be focused on what that person as an individual can consistently do for, as you say, 15 to 20 to 24 years. If they're on a you know a way of eating or if they they think about nutrition in a certain way that's not going to give them then that longevity then everything that they do after a certain point is going to become progressively harder and it's not going to be an overnight thing it will be insidious it will be like oh, 10 years down the line because you've been eating shit food for 10 years now your body's starting to fall apart injuries are taking a long time to recover from because we're always going to get injuries we can we can never like foresee every injury and, and prehab every injury right so we've always got to have that um notion of like let's eat in a way that is going to help that person have a long career so the longevity approach um what that looks like is different for each person but there are certain kind of base markers that i'm sure that you'd agree with in terms of nutrition where it's like it, you know, these are the things that you have to tick and then everything around that is kind of up to you. And I'll kind of uh, just maybe think of a, uh, um, a question in that when you are on, let's say, select the selection process and when you are on or when you've passed, hopefully, and you've been successful and you're now working it as a, as a job, is there an element that you have to actually take a step back? Because I suppose that the selection process, that the people select doing the selection don't really care if you get injured or not. They want to see the ones that get through. But once you get through, if you get injured, you can't do your job. Mm-hmm. So is, is there an element of when someone comes to you and goes, oh, I'm, I'm in the SAS, I, I need a program, to say, okay, let's, let's try and hold you back a little bit because the, maybe their mindset is to push harder. Um, mm-hmm. have, have you dealt with that? I know it's kind of going off topic in nutrition, but... Yeah, so and it, it kind of borders both of them because, again, like nutrition, nutrition plays a big part. But when we're looking at, yeah, just from a, a training perspective of, of someone going through, you do have to distill that um, mindset of like, well, you know, you've made it. And yes, there's always going to be that like aspect of um, uh, proving yourself around, uh, around your peers when it comes to training. And there's certainly some interesting stories surrounding that as well that have, uh, that have come through but always uh, come back to knowing yourself always come back to again it's a bit of a stoic virtue where it's like you don't really need to prove anything to anyone but yourself and and really like it's only people's opinions so if you know that you can do the job then just keep like ticking away at that keep chipping away at your, your nutrition your longevity approach to training your longevity approach to conditioning and things like that because yeah the, the the worst thing i think personally the worst thing that i could think of is going through six months of selection being you know getting in the door and then fucking rolling your ankle and being out for x amount of weeks or even having something as simple as that and a knock-on effect up the body of like lower back injury or anything like that just from a rolled ankle because you did some 
you know, gas training thing. <laughs> I, I could think of nothing worse uh, mentally than having that happen to somebody. And like, thankfully, touch wood, that's never happened to anyone, um, you know, anyone that we've been involved with. Uh, but things happen, you know, like injuries happen. There's, uh, there's unforeseeable things like a trip, a fall, uh, you know, a busted hand here and there, a busted ankle here and there that you can't ever foresee happening. However, if your training is a certain approach or if your mentality behind training and conditioning and mobility and nutrition is a certain approach, your ability to withstand and mitigate an injury is improved and your ability to then rehab and, and get back to normalcy from certain injuries is also accelerated. Um, so there's a lot of benefits behind behind that kind of approach to training, not just in like keeping someone going for the long term, but also if they do get injured, because they're not like a specialist in deadlifting, it's like because you have this approach of longevity specific to your role, it's also going to help you if you ever get injured, your, your body's just going to bounce back from it a lot quicker. Mm. I suppose that takes us on to injury prevention. Are there yeah. any uh, special like tricks that you have to prevent uh, to help prevent injuries, obviously we can never uh, fully guarantee that you're not going to get injured. But what, what's yep. your what's your um, philosophy behind injury prevention and your approach to it? So uh, I work as a, or I have I have worked and set up a big old clinic as a um, performance specialist, like a performance therapy specialist. So you know you get high end uh, performers, and I did this when I lived in New Zealand as well before I moved uh, to where I am now and, and set up other other therapy clinics as well. And when it comes to injuries, <laughs> like you, you see some crazy things happen. It's like people walking downstairs funnily and just twist their knee and snap an ACL and you're like, wow, I, I thought you were pretty strong, but obviously the human body has weird things that are happening with it. So yeah, there there is an aspect of like, you can't always see an injury coming However, especially like impact-based injuries, it's like if you fall off a roof and you're unconscious, bad shit's going to happen. <laughs> but if you have strong ankles because you do a lot of farmer's walk and you walk around in barefoot as much as you can and you work on your intrinsic foot mobility and your intrinsic foot strength and you've worked on getting your ankle into an inverted and everted position and loaded it in your training, which we do in some of our training, when you then accidentally slip off the side of a pavement and roll your ankle, your brain already knows that movement pattern because we've trained it. So because you know that movement pattern, your brain is more quick to fire muscles to revert back, and then you're therefore less likely to get injured. And we always regret not training the position we get injured in, right? So if you roll your ankle and it's a bad roll and you have a really probably haven't trained or moved into that position in a really long time. Um, which brings me on to another point, actually, statistically, you're more likely to have the same injury um, than you just had than any other injury. So if you've just rolled your ankle, statistically, the next injury that you're going to have is an ankle roll, unless you rehab it properly. If you've just injured your shoulder, statistically, the next injury that you're going to have is a shoulder injury unless you rehab and strengthen the injury mechanism. Uh, um, 
And that comes back to improving mobility, improving range of motion, improving end range strength, and then just loading. Like everything's on a spectrum at that point. So, you know, if someone comes to me with an injury, I'm not going to load them up like I would with someone without an injury. But at the same time, the, the actual training mechanism is still the same. I'm just going to load them a lot less and do things a lot slower, a little bit differently. But the movement patterns are going to be the same. So do you account for um, like un- unusual movement patterns within your program? Like um, speaking on like planes of motion, it's very easy to think of, but generally most programs are very frontal and sagittal plane. Do you account for yeah. a transverse plane motion in your programs? do much rotation work and so on so athleticism lives in the transverse plane so for for anyone listening who doesn't know planes of motion we have three planes of motion sagittal frontal and transverse transverse is just rotational and really like pretty much everything that we do outside of the gym is in a rotational plane of motion which is a combination of the frontal and sagittal but if you're not training the transverse range like um plane of motion sorry your body can't just take A plus B and equal C. You've got to be training C as well. So, yeah, we do a lot of rotation and anti-rotation work in our in our training program. You know, you, you get um, parts of the program where it's like a rotational deadlift. So you have a kettlebell on one side of your ankle and you reach over with your opposite arm and pick it up and bring it back and just have that kind of sling pattern training transversal rotation or anti-rotation training that kind of thing so that's a huge one for all over body performance but also yeah like uh it carries over a lot into the other movement patterns as well if you think like running is just a, a, a rotational movement pattern but its translation is forward movement so we, we rotate and it's translation is that we move forward. <laughs> so <laughs> See, I, if you're not training your rotation, then uh, you're not as good a runner as you could be. Yeah, I like, I like what you said there, athleticism, athleticism lives in the transverse plane. So quite a nice little yeah. sound bite. <laughs> that wasn't my, I probably stole it from like Charlie Francis or yeah. someone like no, that. No, own it, Alex Butt, 2019. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> TM. 